We are beyond lucky to have this, uh, this woman who is a scholar. I, I was a student minister under her for a while. And Dr. D, uh, your reputation is well known here at Bluegrass United Church of Christ. Uh, whenever I speak in the First Testament, because she would smack you if you called it the Old Testament. Um, so some things continue on. But Dr. D, I want to thank you for a couple things. First, I want to thank you for preparing me so well to be a pastor. You were, I tell people, you were hard as hell on me and others, and it was tough, but I appreciate you more as the years go by. So thank you for preparing me and being so hard and difficult in seminary. <laughs> and then we cannot thank you enough for joining us. I know you are well sought after and a very busy woman. This is your specialty, and Dr. D, you also need to know that when I had your class and when I heard this presentation, that's when the finality clicked for me that I'm okay and that God loves me and that for many years I had frankly been lied to. So we are humbled that you've joined us and I'm going to turn it over to you. And I told them I get to listen to a Dr. D lecture with no test. So. Hey. Well, thank you, Marcia and Pam and Kenny for um, making this happen. And thank you to all of you for being here on a Saturday morning. Um, it's a pleasure to join you. Uh, technology is great when it works. Uh, when it doesn't, it's not as fun. But I think we've got this working. Um, just a couple of words. Uh, I have been doing this kind of work uh, probably for about... 15, 17 years now. Um, it started when I was in Lexington, and um, I tell the brief story that uh, the Lexington City Council was debating a fairness amendment about discrimination in housing and other areas of the city, and I watched on TV the city council meeting because I don't go and get involved in those things. That was what I thought, and um I listened to speaker after speaker after speaker who kept saying, if we pass this amendment, we'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what happened to that. Um, I got fed up. I went to the computer. I found that I could submit a letter to the editor online. And so I very hurriedly typed out my letter about what Sodom and Gomorrah was really about in hospitality, ending it with, if we don't pass this, uh, how this fairness amendment uh, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I didn't have to mail the letter or it never would have gone anywhere. I just hit send. And then I had to be out of town for a few days. And when I came back, I didn't know if the letter had been published. Um, I started listening to my voicemail at the office. And, um, you know, they started out with, how dare you call yourself a Christian? You're a terrible person. Um, the next one, you know, you, you're filled with Satan, whatever, and it kept going on and on. I'm like, well, my goodness, uh, where did that come from? Finally, uh, one of the emails from was from the former registrar of uh, Lexington Theological Seminary, Ruth Kitchen, and she said, thank you, thank you, Lisa, for your letter. And then it all fell into place. Um, I went and got online and looked at the Lexington Herald Leader for a few days, and my letter was published, and then there was a uh, monsoon of letters in response, most of them telling me how wrong I was, 
uh, but many of them uh, encouraging uh, what I had written. And the seminary, to its credit, decided to dedicate three Saturday mornings for me to talk about the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, which kind of led into more, more issues of the Bible and sexuality. Um, and from that, I became connected to some wonderful people in Lexington. Um, I've done this presentation as far west as Washington State um, and as far south as somewhere like uh, Arlington, Texas. And even worked with a church in Lawton, Oklahoma, which is uh, a military city, very conservative. And that disciple church actually became open and affirming a couple of years ago. Um, so change is happening even in Oklahoma. So what I'm going to do is go through my presentation fairly quickly. Um, there is a handout you will get that kind of summarizes everything, but I want to make certain we get all the way through the so-called clobber passages and have some time for discussion. So I'm going to switch and share with you my uh, PowerPoint. So um, I always start this kind of presentation with uh, how I approach reading the Bible. And so I often will start with asking people, what is the Bible? Um, there are a variety of answers. I get everything from the very word of God to an old dusty book on the shelf um, to a library. And sometimes people would say, you know, well, it's the inerrant word, um, all kinds of answers. Um, so I often begin with what the Bible is not. Is not an objective history like we might think of it. Um, most of the time we think of history as in the nonfiction section because it's, it's factual. Um, the Hebrew Bible, A, was not trying to write a history for everyone. Rather, they were trying to write Israel's story of their relationship with God. But I also remind us that even so-called objective history is not objective. Every history writer chooses what to include and what to exclude from their from their history textbook. Um, I often say that, you know, when I lived in Virginia, if I had read a book on the Civil War from someone living above the Mason-Dixon line and one from someone living below the Mason-Dixon line, I would have thought two different wars were fought. So certainly the Bible is not trying to um, project a data-filled, here's exactly how it happened kind of history. Um, the second thing it's not is a textbook. Lots of people want to use it for that until I ask them if they'd like their doctor to practice medicine based on what they want to Quick to say no, thank you. Um, you know, I get questions like, what does the Bible say about stem cell research? And I can honestly say nothing. Uh, what a cell was. So if we look to the Bible to answer science questions, we're really asking it to do something it was never intended to do. Um, it's really an unfair question. Then for me, I have several ways of thinking about what the Bible is. Um, it certainly is a story of people who claim a common heritage, God, hopes and dreams. It's a theology book talking about God and humans and creation, but it's not systematic. If you look in two different books, you could get two different answers to who is God or why are we here or why do bad things happen to good people. I think of it as the roadmap 
left by our previous faith uh, ancestors that kind of lets us know that we're not the first ones to travel along this path of life and to let us know that we're not the first ones to ask hard questions. And also, I think they left it behind so we wouldn't repeat their mistakes. The Bible is a mirror. It's about uh, finding our place in the story. It can be used to reflect to us how we're failing to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. Um, a lot of times we want to see ourselves in the heroes of the story when perhaps maybe we need to see ourselves in the not so heroic people um, of the story. It is a compilation of voices. It's a library of books that spans centuries and millennia and different geographical locations and different theological perspectives. But we also know that not every voice was included. Some were silenced. Um, and so what I try to do and teach students to do is look for those who aren't being heard. What's at the margin of the text? And then and I think the Bible is a dangerous book. Um, brief Hebrew lesson, um, canonical in around 70 CE, uh, after the second temple was destroyed, they would ask themselves, does this scroll or this text make the hands unclean? Now, in our mind, we would think, well, if it makes the hands unclean, it's bad and we should leave it out. But it was the exact opposite. Because the word translated as unclean, tame, actually has a different sense of being um, in an altered state. Uh, when we are walking around normally in the ancient Israelite mind, uh, we are in a normal state called tahara or tahara. Um, and then we encounter things that cause us to be changed. Uh, things like blood or death or uh, disease. And those kinds of experiences alter us and make us in an extraordinary state. Um, some might even say at times extra holy. And so Tame means we're in that extra state. And in order to get back to normalcy, you had to be separated from the community because holiness was seen as catching and too much holiness was dangerous. Um, so you were separated and not allowed to do a few things until you returned to your normal state. Well, when those rabbis said that this scroll makes the hands tame, they said the scroll has the potential to alter us. And that's how I understand the Bible. It can deal life and it can deal death. Um, and so we who read and interpret and, and teach and preach on this biblical text have to be very careful how we use it and make certain we don't misuse it and abuse people in the process. So that's a little bit about what the Bible is as I approach it. Um, the second question that often comes up is who wrote the Bible? Um, some people we know them would say God. It fell from heaven, as is in King James English. That's what some people believe. If God didn't at least uh, you know, make it fall from the sky, God was holding the stylus or whatever was being used to write down the words on the text. No human element at all. Some people would say humans wrote the Bible. 
Um, these are usually people who aren't part of a tradition that sees biblical text as somehow important in their lives. And they believe it was a purely human endeavor um, and has no religious or holy aspects to it. I tend to fall in the third category. I think the biblical text is like a dance between the human and the divine. There is inspiration, but it comes through a human being with all the limitations that that human being carries with them. And so sometimes in the biblical text, the divine shines through as if it were straight from God. Other places, the human element overshadows the divine completely. And we have to look really hard as to why did they write the text the way it is. And remember that, you know, not every text was recorded for us to go and do likewise. Um, this brings us to the question of authority. A lot of people talk about the authority of scripture. It's good to remember that authority must be granted and recognized. It's not automatic at all. Um, and we get to decide what kind and how much authority we're going to grant to something. So with the Bible, if we choose to call it authoritative for our lives, what does that mean? Do we seek out all answers before we make decisions by looking at the Bible? Or is it something that we ground our behavior in, but don't always have to look for the right answer in the biblical text? And some people would say they have what we call in scholarship a canon within a canon. That is, there are certain parts of the Bible that are more authoritative than others. Particularly in the Christian tradition, New Testament has been seen as somewhat more authoritative. Um, also, um, I would say that in my experience, a lot of Christians hold Paul's writings or so-called writings as more authoritative than the gospel. They're actually Paulinians, not Christians. So we need to think about the Bible as somehow important in our lives. If that's the case, we need to ask why and how. And we know that within our decisions, our thoughts, our, our ideas about the world, we also have a mind that's reason. We also have tradition. What has the church said through the centuries about um, a biblical text or a social issue, um, and we have our own experience. Um, what is it that we experience about the divine, and does it line up with what the Bible says or what tradition says or even what reason says? And once again, for me, that's kind of a, uh, a dance of all four elements with us in the middle as we walk through life thinking about how to be faithful followers of the way of Jesus if that's our path. Um, and, and so that brings us with people, you know, say God wrote the Bible as is. Um, they often call themselves literalists. They claim that the Bible is their primary or only authority. They also claim they don't interpret. They just read what is written, which is kind of funny because how can you understand what's written if you aren't interpreting what's written? Uh, but these people are not particularly interested in logic, I have found. Um, they often will see biblical mandates as absolutes, sometimes. 
um, they will say the Bible says it, I believe it. And I'm like, well, what's the it that you're talking about? Um, so I often encounter these self-proclaimed literalists. And I tell the story of one particular uh, encounter with a woman who had her floppy Bible waving it at me, quoting a text from Romans. And she kept saying, I believe this is the word of God, and I take it to be literal truth. I'm willing to, you know, respect her. I said, so let me get this straight. You believe and take literally everything in the Bible. And she said, yes, I do. I said, well, I have one question. When Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, it doesn't look like you did that. And I swear I didn't make this up. She looked at me with a serious face and said, he didn't mean that literally. Don't, don't. So, um, borrowing from Peter Gomes, the now late Peter Gomes, who was dean of the chapel at Harvard, we are all selectivists. We select what we take literally and we select what we don't. Or more likely, we select what passages we think have enduring value and which passages are so bound by the cultural context that they can't work in the 21st century. And so in biblical studies, we use this word hermeneutic and that to be honest with ourselves and with the Bible, we have to have a consistent hermeneutic. And a hermeneutic simply means interpretive framework. It's how you decide what to take literally and what not to. It's how you decide what is um, truth and what is something that we really have to struggle with why the text is in the Bible to begin with. And we need to apply it to all texts consistently. You don't get to pick and choose in the same way that my friend with her Bible did. Um, it causes us to recognize our le reading location. Who are we and what do we bring to the text? And so since I'm going to be running through biblical texts, I'll give you a brief thing about my hermeneutic. How do I decide what is timeless and what is time bound? Well, as one who seeks to follow the way of Jesus, I'm informed by the life and teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and in extra-biblical materials. And I hold on to the fact that when Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your strength, which he took right out of Deuteronomy 6.5. He didn't make it up. And then the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the, as yourself is important. We always focus on love your neighbor. But if we don't love ourselves, how can we love our neighbor as ourselves? For me, when I'm studying scripture, I ask myself, does this text help me love God with all that I am? And does it help me love my neighbor as myself? If the answer is yes, that's great. I still get to do a lot of work in interpretation to make certain I'm not seeing what I want to see in the text. And if I ask that question of another text and it's clearly no, then I have to do even more work because I want to know why it's there and how I can understand it and explain that it's not something to be held on to 
forever and ever. So again, that's how I approach scripture. That's my hermeneutic. And so when we go to interpret text, the word is exegesis. It just means draw out meaning. We ask questions like, what are the actual words of the text? What does the text say? What kind of literature are we reading? Is this a, a parable? Is this some sort of legal text? What do we know about the socio-historical context out of which these texts developed? How does it work in the canon? Is this kind of an odd thing that doesn't connect to anything else? Or is it somehow related to stories elsewhere in our biblical canon? What ideology or ideologies are in the text? What's it trying to convince me that's right and what's wrong? Whose voice is not heard? And then finally, once I've done all this exegetical work, how do I understand its meaning for today? People of faith in a 21st century context. All right, now we're going to get to the good stuff. Time for sex. And I will make a side note that, yes, uh, I taught Marsha and Pam about the First Testament. Um, when I got to my new teaching position, they were using Hebrew Bible, which is just fine with me, too. So that's what I've been using for the past nine years. And so I'm not changing on yet. I still think in a church context, First Testament works really well. But in a scholarly context where I work with a lot of Jewish scholars, uh, Hebrew Bible may work for that context better. So a couple of things we in the church have been taught that sex was somehow inherently shameful and bad. Well, that came from much later, maybe somewhere in the New Testament, but certainly in St. Augustine, we get that message. In the Hebrew Bible, though, sex is not bad. In fact, it's a God-given blessing. The first commandment God gives to the two humans in the Genesis 1 story is to be fruitful and multiply, which requires that they have sex. We learn that this kind of coming together in physical intimacy is about companionship. It even has the potential to be a sacred act. If you've ever looked at Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, you'll see that that is nothing but romantic, erotic poetry. A lot of people wondered how it stayed in the Bible all these years. Well, that's because I think our faith ancestors knew that celebrating the love between two people is holy and that intimacy can be sacred. I often tell parents, if you want to scare your children into not having sex, don't just say, say no. Say that, well, when you're in the back seat or wherever, know that God is there with you. But like many gifts, sex has the potential to be harmful when it's used to abuse another person. And we see a lot of that in life and also in the biblical texts. Um, so when we read the Hebrew Bible, we know that these texts were developing somewhere in, I don't know, the last 800 years of the time before the Common Era. Um, and it was an ancient Near Eastern context. Um, the people who were uh, writing these texts had a particular way of seeing life. Remember I told you their 
science knowledge was extremely limited, so they had to base things on what they could see and observe around them. First off, for Israel, survival was a primary concern. They were never a large nation. They were always a minority, even when they ruled the land of Israel-Palestine. Life was precarious. Famine, disease, war could wipe out an entire population. And for women, pregnancy and childbirth were both very dangerous. In fact, many of the women died in childbirth. Um, and so, uh, like, the average life of a woman was around 30 years old. And a lot of that was because of uh, pregnancy and childbirth. And as I said, Israel was never a large population. They also felt with, uh, fought against a high infant mortality rate. Some say as high as 90%. So they had to focus on reproduction. You had to have lots of children because percentage-wise, many of them wouldn't survive. You had to have lots of children so you could work your farm, your land, and make certain life could go on uh, because you were really doing it all for yourself back then. So Israel's understandings of reproduction were based on the fact that they were in an agricultural uh, context understood in reproduction as in seed and field. They believed that the male seed, the sperm, as we will call it today, had everything necessary to produce a life. And the woman was simply the field. And so if the seed was planted and nothing happened, whose fault was it? A woman's. That's how we get the word barren, a barren woman. If the seed is planted and you get a girl child, which is not your preference, whose fault is it? The woman. Well, we know today that the sperm determines the sex of the, the unborn child. So remember, they were thinking that way and didn't have any of the concepts we have today. The spilling seed was wasting life in their mind. All seed must be directed toward reproduction. Um, there's a story in Genesis 38 about a guy, Onan, who rather than consummate a marriage, spilled his seed on the ground and God struck him dead. Now, if that's not an object lesson, I uh, don't know what is. So with those thoughts in mind, um, let's look at what the Hebrew Bible says about homosexuality. And the first thing I can say is nothing as far as that word is concerned. There is no word for homosexuality in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, the languages of the biblical text. In fact, that word didn't enter the English language until the 19th century. Now, does that mean that they didn't have an understanding of same-sex attraction and other diversities? Probably not. It just meant that that wasn't a word they used. Um, and some might say it wasn't a big concern of theirs in the general scheme of life. Maybe the biblical writers assumed everyone was heterosexual, or maybe they just were concerned about that seed and where it ended up. Um, we know um, that in the ancient world, uh, there were particular sex acts 
uh, same-sex acts that were uh, practiced. Um, conquered armies would often rape those they had conquered, um, not because they were attracted to them, but because it was a, a violent show of power. And it also meant that you were demoralizing the men because in the ancient world, they were playing the part of a woman and women were not equal to men. There were ritual sex acts. Um, some of the fertility religions believed in you know, reproducing uh, what might go on in the heavens. And then in ancient Rome, there was a practice called pederasty, where older Roman men would keep young boys as their kind of sexual outlet. Um, today, we would call that pedophilia. Um, and we know that that's wrong. And none of these three acts are anything in line with what we know today about committed loving relationships between people, regardless of their gender identity or their biological sex. All right, now we're in the biblical text. I would bet a lot of you have seen this phrase on posters. Whenever Fred Phelps and others would come in protest, they would often use Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, it's a catchy little slogan, but it's a poor, poor reading of the biblical text. They are clearly uh, looking at the Genesis text, and first off, they don't re recognize that Adam and Eve aren't until the end of chapter 2. Um, in the first story, God doesn't create Adam and Eve. Um, but they're also not looking at the text in a way that um, recognizes that these are, are what we might call mythical stories or parables about creation. They weren't meant to be taken literally. And when you start out with no one on the face of the earth, the emphasis has to be on reproduction. So if God is going to have a world filled with human beings, the only way they knew to do that was to create a male body and a female body for procreation. The text doesn't talk about sexual orientation. It talks about reproduction and how do we fill the earth. Um, and then the second story, you may remember God first creates this human out of the humus, this Adam out of the Adamah, uh, a person out of the ground. And it is a solo person until the end of the story when God says, this is a lonely human being. I'm going to split it in half and let it no longer be lonely. Well, the text says that God put that being to sleep and divided it in half and closed up the sides. And suddenly you have woman and man. Um, and, and there again, that's more of a, a biological than a... Uh, orientation distinction. Um, what I find powerful, though, about this story is, is the rabbis used to try and imagine what this first human looked like if it wasn't particularly male or female. And one of the images they used was a two-sided creature that had a male side and a female side, but they were facing in opposite directions and thought they were alone. And so when they were split apart and could turn around and see the other, they knew they weren't alone anymore. But that image of us needing to find that which completes us is a powerful image of God not wanting us to be lonely, 
just so happens again in this story to start the world off, it's a man and a woman. But that human can be split in multiple ways to create the diversity that God has presented us with in this particular world. So I think that's a bad exegesis, just toss it out idea. Well, then that moves us to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what got me into this business to begin with. Thing we have to do is remember that these are legendary stories about Abraham and Sarah and their family, and Lot was Abraham's nephew. And in order to read Genesis 19, you have to read Genesis 18. Um, in 18 is when the three visitors come to Sarah and Abraham, and Abraham shows great hospitality while Sarah does all the work. And in the end, the three visitors tell them that in due time, Sarah, who is 90, will be pregnant. And she laughs, and it's a whole different story when you really know what the Hebrew says. Um, but that's another day and another topic. Anyway, after that, God says, I've heard terrible things about Sodom and Gomorrah, how evil they are. I'm going to send down two of those angels to witness what's really going on, because God doesn't decide based on hearsay. And so then we're left with this scene where God and Abraham are talking. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities because they're so evil. And Abraham says, but what if there are innocent people, righteous people? And so God and Abraham have this bargaining. Is there, what if there's 50? What if there's 20? Get down to the point that God promises if there are just 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God will not destroy them. So we go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, we've heard that the sin is homosexuality. But what a lot of people don't take into account as well is the importance of hospitality in the ancient Near East. There were not hotels for, for travelers. So if you were stuck on the side of the road to spend the night or even in a city square, you were at risk. It was an obligation to welcome strangers into your home to provide them with food and water and shelter for whatever time they were in your home. And actually, Abraham, back when the three visitors came, was a great example. And Lot in this story is a good example of hospitality. So Genesis 19, we know the story. The two angels came Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. I've often wondered, why is Lot there? Could it be because Lot knows the kind of neighbors he has? And so when he sees these two strangers, he asks them to come to his home to spend the night. And they're like, oh, no, we'll just sleep in the square. And Lot insisted them, insisted that they come to his house because he knew it was dangerous in the city square. And so they came gave them food and water and now they're under his shelter and they're laying down to sleep when as the nrsv reads before they lay down the men of the city the men of sodom both young and old all the people to the last man surrounded the house now that creates an image and has for centuries in people's minds of an all-male group coming to lot's door and they demand to have those two visitors out so essentially they can rape them and everybody gets this idea was men wouldn't have sex with men. But that's not what the text says. 
As a matter of fact, when you go back in the Hebrew and look at it, a better translation would be the people of the city, the people of Sodom, from youngest to the eldest, all the people of Sodom, to the last one surrounded the house. This is a different image. Now you have men and women, children, grandparents, everyone at Lot's door wanting those two strangers so they can gang rape them. Now, not only is that linguistically correct, but it's also important to the story because God said, if there are just 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Well, now we know there aren't even 10. Because if it's just the men at the door, then those innocent women and children are going to be wiped away with the guilty. So the story only makes sense with these people coming and wanting to demoralize and be violent to these strangers because that's how they treat strangers. And maybe Lot knows firsthand. And so we know the rest of the story. They um, come and want these guests and Lot says, no, no, they're under my shelter. And he knows he has to protect them. And not being father of the year, he says, here, take my two virgin daughters. Well, that's not what the people want because it's not about sex. It's about violence and how you treat the stranger in your midst. And of course, the angelic visitors strike the people blind and and Lot and his wife and daughters are saved. So again, this is about how the people were treating outsiders. And yes, I do think to know means sexual knowledge, but again, in this case, rape. As I mentioned, all the people to the last one are involved in this. When Sodom and Gomorrah appear in other places throughout the Bible, their sins are identified as greed, abusive behavior, idolatry, and inhospitality. Nothing's mentioned about sex and men wanting to have sex with men. And Jesus perhaps reminds us most clearly that Sodom and Gomorrah are the epitome of inhospitality. When he sends his disciples out to foreign cities, he says, if the city doesn't welcome you, shake the dust from your feet because you'll be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. Just Sodom and Gomorrah, once interpreted, doesn't work in these clobber passages. Well, now we come to Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite text. You've all read it, I'm sure, several times. Um, first thing I like to remind people is that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. That's a lot of commandments to try and keep. And I point out, these were meant only for Israel. It was how the Israelites were to live in covenant relationship with God, self, and neighbor. They weren't for the whole world. They were intended to make Israel unique among their neighbors. And it wasn't a buffet of laws. You couldn't pick and choose. You couldn't say, I'll take 1, 25, 505, and 610. It was all or nothing. It's just the way it was. So if you're not keeping them all, you might as well not keep any of them. Um, the book of Leviticus is a kind of strange book. It's really uh, a book of God calling to the priests about how they were to be priests among the people. 
Um, it is sometimes understood in the rabbinic tradition as the instruction for the priests and instruction of the priests. Actually, there are two parts of Leviticus. One part focuses on priestly behavior and one part focuses on the common family's behavior. And again, it was about how to live in right relationship with God and neighbor and self. When we look at the two texts that always get ripped out of Leviticus and quoted, they appear between the chapters 17 through 26, which is called the Holiness Code. How are you to be holy as the Lord your God is holy? Um, several things that these chapters of Leviticus require are, if you sass your parent, you should be killed. Now, I don't know about you, but if we still practice that, I wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be either. Just don't know. It requires that anyone guilty of adultery be killed. Well, again, if this were still practiced, I'm pretty certain Hollywood would be fairly empty. Washington, D.C. would be a small town. And maybe some congregations might be smaller as well. A daughter of a priest who engages in prostitution is to be killed. Now, again, how are we supposed to make sense of that? Because that's not how we live in the 21st century. And if you use the Lord's name in vain, you should be killed. That means if you attach God to something God doesn't want to be attached to, like God gave us the victory in the hockey playoff, well, you're using the Lord's name in vain and you should be killed. It's written in the Bible. It says it. Do you believe it? Also, the Holiness Code does not allow heterosexual intercourse with a menstruating woman. Harvesting the corners of your field were prohibited. You were to leave that for the widow, the orphan, and the uh, stranger. Couldn't crossbreed livestock, which for me as a city girl, I don't know what's crossbreeding particularly, but I think it has something to do um, you know, when you cross a donkey with a horse and you get, uh, can't even think of the name of the animal now. Um, eating fruit from a young tree was prohibited and getting a tattoo was prohibited. Now, this usually makes people start pulling their feet under their chair because they're starting to get stepped on. You couldn't charge interest on a loan, which I really wish my mortgage company was like. That. Not going to happen. So let's look at the two texts that get ripped out: Leviticus eighteen twenty-two and Leviticus twenty thirteen. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman; it is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination; they shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Well, first, let's look at how the literal writing of the text turns out. With a male, you, which is a masculine pronoun, shall not lie the lying of a woman. It is an abomination. And likewise, if a man lies with a male, the lying of a woman, the two have committed an abomination. Now, why is that important? Well, first off, these texts are about wasting seed. If two men engage in a sex act, the seed's not going to end up in a field. And they were really, really worried that these seeds don't get wasted. 
as one reason why there's nothing said about two women being intimate. So I like to say the good news is in the Bible that lesbians are okay. You can celebrate that. But again, this need to reproduce as they might actually die out, which let's be clear today, we're not about to die out due to under reproduction, but over reproduction. And secondly, that lying of a woman, again, means that one of the males has to be on the receiving end. And that's how they understood was the woman's part. And so a man playing a woman's part was a disgrace in that ancient world. You didn't want to be doing something that got you called a woman, which is another problem we can talk about another day about the sexism against women. But again, these two Leviticus lines get ripped out. Nobody looks at what's around them. You know, they quote these to me and I said, well, did you have a cheeseburger today? Did you enjoy your bacon with breakfast? Did you, uh, are you wearing clothing of mixed types of material? Well, you've broken commandments right and left. So why these two? I'm convinced that a lot of people's hermeneutic is they take literally what doesn't step on their own toes. And what does step on their own toes, well, that was either metaphorical or um, outdated. Also, a word about abomination. A lot of people think this word, to'ava, was the worst sin ever. That's not really the truth. It has something to do with that which brings ritual impurity. And so a lot of different things are called abominations. For instance, eating a sacrifice at the wrong time is an abomination. Eating pork or shellfish, hello, shrimp scampi, that's an abomination. Seeing a menstruating woman naked, that's an abomination. So... Again, the good news is, as followers of the way of Jesus, we're no longer required to keep all 613 commandments. So let's leave them where they are. Get some good ideas from them, but know that we're not in the same place in the same time with the same concerns. That's all there is in the Hebrew Bible that are trotted out as clobber passages. So now we move to the New Testament, which is even fewer texts. But just a few things about sex in the New Testament. During the writing of the New Testament, the early church, or they were called earlier, early followers of the way, were a minority group. And their greatest threat came from Greek culture and Greek religions. And they were worried that people who were following the way might be tempted and be assimilated into the Hellenistic Greek culture. So they were really concerned about how to stay true to the way and be unique. And so in trying to prove their identity, followers like Paul were starting to carve out what they did or didn't do. Um, at this point, remember, Christianity wasn't early on recognized as an official religion as Judaism was. And so here you have Paul and others saying, we need to be different. And so anything that even hinted at Greco-religion had to be avoided or absolutely dismissed. 
especially any sexual behavior that might have something to do with their religious rituals. So temple prostitutes, fertility rituals, all of that was strictly prohibited in this new community that would become Christianity. So the first text and the one that this woman was quoting at me that day, Romans 1, she kept saying Romans 2, 25 and 26, and I kept saying, no, it's Romans 1, 26 and 27. Yeah, I know, I'm not a Baptist, but I do know my Bible, even if I don't have one in my hands. So in Romans 1, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he's talking about what happens when you follow other gods, become idolaters. As that God gave them up to degrading passions, women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, the men giving up natural intercourse with women, and they were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts, and they received in their own person due penalty. Well, the word I, I italicized is the word that's translated as unnatural, parathizen in Greek. It's a phrase, and it's actually probably better translated as unconventional, unusual, not the norm, because Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen in referring to men with long hair, which again today we wouldn't see that as unnatural. Also, what we, I think, are hearing described is probably some sort of sex orgy. And that would have been connected, in Paul's mind, to Greek religion and therefore was pagan. So these people are guilty of idolatry, and they were given up to these other, un, what do I want to say, unacceptable behaviors. What often gets left out is it's not just the 25 and 26 and sex behaviors, but they are also uh, envious and gossipy. So it's a whole image of things just gone awry. And I do think that using natural in some sense was reminding us that Paul is imagining heterosexual people going against their nature. It's kind of odd when you think of how many people want uh, LGBTQ plus people to go against their nature. And that's not something that God smiles upon. All right. The next two texts are what I call sin inventories. Um, it's about who's going to inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and a similar one in 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 10. Um, I'm just going to look at it. Do not, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the NRSV. And 1 Timothy 1.10 is talking about the lawless and the disobedient. Um, those who killed their father or mother for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So let's look at this. The word that's translated in the NRSV as sodomite is the Greek word arsenokoitai which sounds absolutely nothing like sodomite or sodom. Um, and it's really hard to translate because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the biblical text. 
but it probably means male beds, um, which might refer to male prostitutes or the pederasty practices I mentioned at the beginning. And again, Paul is very concerned with pagan religions. The word translated as male prostitutes is the word malakoi, which actually has a basic meaning of soft and really has to do with lazy people, weak people. And in the sexist ideas of the Bible, men who are being like women and being soft and lazy. Imagine how that text should be read if laziness is also going to prevent you from entering the kingdom of God. But what's really troubling to me is most translations recently produced have used the word homosexuals or sodomites for that phrase or that word arsenokoitai. Even the NRSV, which I would think is one of the most accurate translations to date, uses sodomites, even though we know that's not what this word means or was referring to. Interestingly enough, the previous Revised Standard Version used sexual perverts. The King James used the phrase men abusing themselves. Um, why did we start adding homosexual and sodomite, especially since we know there's no word for homosexual in Greek at all? Well, it's obvious that every translation is an interpretation and this was an intentional addition to the text that was completely inaccurate in translation that was added for people to get their way. I know someone on the translation team of the New Revised Standard Version, and I know that when people argued to make this sodomite, um, there was sort of a give and take, and so they got that translation and the other side got something else. I hope it was worth it, because if they had laid down the translation as is, um, we might have saved ourselves a lot of pain and suffering for God's LGBTQ plus people. So the last one, Jude 7, Jude is just one chapter, very short, and it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and again, using them as a city of people who are an example of what they call sexual immorality. I think gang rape would fit in that category and pursued unnatural lust. So again, maybe unconventional lust or even more. What's important in this text is that the audience would have known that in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people they're trying to rape were actually angels and angels and humans, divine beings and humans should not intermingle. Um, that is one reason for the flood back in Genesis. That's it. That's all there is that usually find them their way to the protest and the preachers and the hate-filled speech and spiritual abuse that we hear from too many places within the Christian community. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee and switch us back so I can see you all and you can see me and then uh, we can take questions. Hey, you look good. Pardon me? It's good to hear your voice. Oh, uh, well, thanks. Yes. 
So before we came on, we uh, went to the fellowship hall and uh, broke in a couple groups and we asked some folks some questions. So I'll ask a couple and then they may have some that they want to ask as well. You know, Dr. D, a lot of times those of us in the LGBT community will use as our defense per se, well, Jesus never said anything about being gay or homosexuality. Why or why not do you think that is a valid response when we're getting clobbered? It's a great thing, a question, and usually if I have more time, I end with, and what did Jesus say about this? Uh -huh. um, so, <clears throat> I think it's important um, for several reasons. Um, in all his teachings, Jesus was never concerned with uh, what Paul would later call perhaps unnatural behavior. He was focused more on sins that harmed others, particularly those in the minority. So we hear a lot of teachings against greed and against envy and against uh, abusing another person. Um, and even some questionable ideas about divorce, though I think maybe Jesus got it wrong there. Uh, oops, I said it. Um, I also think that it's important that um, when Jesus was asked those two greatest commandments, the one he got from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, actually came right from the middle of the two clobber passages. Mm. And I like to remind folks, if homosexuality was God's hot button issue, don't you think Jesus would have chosen one of those two rather than this reminder that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And even later it says, love the stranger as yourself. Mm. So I think that's important. He had all these Leviticus laws and he didn't go there. And third, as I understand Jesus, his basic message was about welcoming about expanding the circles, breaking down barriers, um, and making sure that everyone knew that they were a beloved child of God, that they were loved and lovable. And none of that works with the kind of um, using the Bible to abuse people based on their sexual orientation or identity, etc. Um, so in my way, you know, I told you, I get my hermeneutic from him, love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't worry about those other things, or at least it didn't show up in the Gospels. So that's why I think it's a valid response. Um, however, um, that's not always going to quiet the conversation. And that's why I do these other clobber passages, because somebody's going to come out with something that they think is, is appropriate. Um, so just saying Jesus loves me is wonderful, but it may not help you if you're in a, a contentious situation. And so I use my voice to help people understand what those texts really are about and to remind them that in many ways, um, as I said, they may be guilty as Sodom and Gomorrah for how they abuse the stranger or the outsider in their midst. Thank you. What about the hot button issue of marriage? Uh, and we all got that backlash. Um, and we see the signs, marriage equal one man, one woman. I often refer them to the story of Abraham uh, or David or others uh, along the way. But how do you, th what do you think is a sound Christian or biblical response to marriage equals one man and one woman? Um, I think your, your response is good. I always um, say, well, let's look at what biblical marriage was. 
um, essentially for the Hebrew Bible, um, it was a man could have as many wives as he could support. Um, and, and clothing, food, and he had to give her her um, sexual privileges. If he couldn't keep up with all three, then he couldn't take another wife. So yes, you have Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Keturah. You have other people, um, like you said, David has more wives than we can count, and any, many more concubines, Solomon. Um, so if we want to look at the Bible for family values, we have to be careful because some of their values are not things we want to keep today. Um, I, you know, the other thing I've said is in the Hebrew, there's no word for marriage. Mm. Um, every time we see the word marriage, it's a different thing than what the Hebrew actually says. And instead of a word for marriage, they often use the word lakak, which means to take, like you take property. And so a man will take a woman to be his companion, um, and the word Natan to give. So a dad would give the daughter, so she's property again. So our understanding of marriage is a very late concept that doesn't fit anywhere within the biblical text. Um, and I go back to this idea that in that second creation story, God doesn't want us to be lonely. And so we seek out, and if we find someone that completes us, it really shouldn't matter um, who that person is as far as biology or other aspects. It, it matters about the love that the two people share. So, again, I, I try and remind them, you really don't want to go back to biblical marriage, <laughs> especially if you're a woman um, and, you know, could be cast aside if you were infertile. Those kinds of things. Well, it's, inter it's interesting to me that you've always referred to Michael as your companion uh, when you do post. My companion and I, and uh, I always think, oh, she's referring back there to Genesis. All right. Mm -hmm. um, so one question that we had um, in a couple different uh, ways is how would you suggest that folks approach, like one person asked who's here in the African-American community, are there key words or, or ways to start the conversation? And I think piggybacking on that, because you might answer it the same way. So we have a lot of folks here whose families are very conservative, Pentecostal, live in rural Kentucky, and they won't even be open to any conversation. How, how would you respond to that? Well, that was um, my first comment was going to be, you have to figure out if they're in a teachable place. Mm. Um, and so, yes, um, sometimes this is an extremely difficult conversation within the African-American and in the Latino, Latina populations. Um, part of that is particularly around the issues of the importance of men being strong, particularly in the African-American tradition because of the history of slavery. Um, and so um, I try to listen to those who might be in a different um, racial ethnic uh, context than me. Um, I try and start with, we both take the Bible very seriously. So let's read the text together and talk them through because you know there's a text or a few texts that say it's okay to have slaves. Um, and obviously you don't want that to be uh, taken literally. 
So we need to go back to the context of what the Bible says and how we read it. Um, as I also am convinced, um, sexism against women is a huge component of uh, hatred towards LGBTQ plus folks, uh, particularly men. Because again, you don't want to be like a woman because that's really bad. Um, so some of that equality of all people has to be an undergirding. And then you start chipping away at where they think the line needs to be drawn. Um, if it's someone who is just not going to engage in the conversation, um, then you have to leave it at that. Um, and I'm very much committed to the fact that if you're in a position like that and it's causing you harm, then you have to get out of that situation no matter how, how hard it might be. Um, because nobody needs to be spiritually abused for who they are. But if you ever find the moment where they start to question one thing that they always believed, then that might be the opening of a door to start asking other questions. Um, I use my mom as an example, who is very conservative, I think, theologically, reads the King James every day. Um, but uh, when my dad had Alzheimer's, um, his grandchildren wouldn't come visit him and help her with her home care of my dad. The only person who came and helped her was her nephew, who is gay. Hmm. And my mom started questioning, you know, these these youth, or their grandchildren were wearing what would Jesus do bracelets, and then never came to see their grandfather. And here, this single male who had always been, you know, outside the family because, oh, don't talk about Randy, he's gay shows up and helps her. Um, that was a moment where I could start to break down some of my mom's uh, preconceived notions and fears because she too had been told this is what the Bible says. Um, so again, um, I, I'm convinced many people who make the loudest noise and protest the most, um, it's based out of fear. Because if I let go of this one belief, what other belief do I have to let go of? Sure. And I appreciate you sharing even the vulnerability of that story, that personal story with your mom and your dad and, and that. Because honestly, until just now, I didn't know your mom was really, really conservative. So how does she feel about this work you're doing? Because you're known all over the country for doing this. Um. You know, my mom's one of those that takes a couple of steps forward and then a step back and then a couple of steps forward. But yes, yeah, she doesn't. She supports me in what I do. Um, many years ago, when I was still in Lexington, there was um, a soul force, uh, silent protest at Jerry Falwell's church. And I came home and my mom had had uh, heart heart stent put in and I was staying with her but I also had promised to go and do a workshop and speak at a rally and I told her that and she said well of course you have to go hmm. and she never complained never said anything um, she said it's okay I'm all right by myself your sister's here um, so she's not um, a liberal by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> But she's more open than she was 20 years ago. Sure. So I've been blessed in these eight plus years to officiate 52 weddings. And for me, it's a very sacred time. 
and it's, there's about split halfway between same-sex and heterosexual. And I love to use Ruth and Naomi for the lesbian weddings or Jonathan uh, and, help me out, David, um, in male weddings. Uh, is that legitimate? And can you speak to those two passages? Sure. Actually, another slide I had um, was on sex-friendly texts. And so the story of Ruth and Naomi was one. David and Jonathan was one. Um, and then just Song of Songs, because even though it's a man and a woman in that story, what they experience as um, uh, abuse and uh, exclusion uh, is based on economics, but it could just as easily be based on sexual orientation. Um, Ruth and Naomi, obviously, in that covenant they make with one uh, that Ruth makes to Naomi, um, is more than just a daughter-in-law saying, hey, I'll go with you. We've known that because we use it in heterosexual weddings. Um, I believe that in the story of Ruth, um, Ruth and Naomi could have made it if they hadn't been in a culture that required them to have a male in the family. And so out of her love for Naomi and out of Naomi's love for Ruth, they make this plan. They get Boaz to, to quote unquote, marry Ruth and they have a son. And at the end of the book, Boaz is gone and it's Ruth and Naomi and the women as Naomi holds her grandson and those women say to Ruth, um, your daughter-in-law has been worth more to you than seven sons. I think it is. Um, well, that tells me that really Boaz was the sperm donor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he got some land out of it, and Ruth and Naomi got the male child. And now they can go on, just mm -hmm. the two of them, because they were perfectly uh, happy together. Um, and that your daughter's worth more to you than seven sons is similarly repeated in the story of Hannah and her husband Elkanah, um, Hannah is barren, and her husband says, am I not more to you than seven sons? Mm -hmm. um, I believe that maybe we read into biblical text some of the heterosexism in our world. Um, Ruth and Naomi did their job. They reproduced, and then they can go on living together. David and Jonathan, there's more going on there than, you know, <laughs> best friends, Boy Scouts. Uh, and, and again, I don't think the text was afraid to describe that. So it couldn't have been as taboo as we want to make it because David did what he was supposed to do. He had lots of wives because that's what kings do. Uh, but the only person he said he loved and the only he healthy relationship he ever had was with Jonathan. And when Jonathan dies, David goes and gets Jonathan's son and brings him to where he is living. And that son eats at David's table every night. It sounds a lot like adoption. It sounds a lot like that relationship was something more. Um, so, yes, I think Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan, um, I think recognizing that they, you know, again, as long as you reproduce, it doesn't matter what you do in your spare time. <laughs> um, and we're the only ones who want to worry about what people are doing in their spare time. Um, so I think there are some texts that indicate that intimacy between people of the same sex, gender, um, is not inherently wrong. Um, I once said that, 
that Ruth and Naomi had an intimate relationship on a handout that got to the uh, diocese office there in Kentucky. Um, and I was visited by the, the uh, bishop's right-hand guy who happened to be a trustee of the seminary um, in which he said, you are writing that Ruth and Naomi had sex. And I said, no, I said they had an intimate relationship. If you think that equals sex, then you have a problem. <laughs> he also questioned the fact that, I, you know, my research shows that Augustine was really the first one to name the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as homosexuality. Um, and he said, you like to indicate that he was wrong, but couldn't he have just been the recipient of continuing revelation? And I said, sure, I'll give you that as long as, you know, I can be the recipient of that same continuing. <laughs> it didn't work well, and I didn't teach a diocese. Oh, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> Do you have time for two more questions that we can maybe ask them? Yeah, I'm, I'm good to go, whatever you want. I know we started a little late, yeah. so okay. I'm good. Anybody have a question they want to ask? So the question was, Dr. D, uh, what do you think is the strongest argument that evangelicals use? And what the comment was is that the, your presentation seems pretty straightforward and clear to understand. But what stronghold, biblically, do you think that they hold on to that they're right? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, first off, they have the advantage that the Bible is supposedly their primary authority where some in the progressive camp have kind of let go of the Bible and said, we'll let them have it. So that's one strength that they have that they can quote their scripture day and night. And some of us can't. Um, interestingly enough, I think the Sodom and Gomorrah story is one of their strongest arguments. It's the one I see so much. Um, they don't, I mean, they talk about Leviticus, but they don't really know enough about it to make a strong case. And then I would say the Romans text is another one that's a strong argument um, because it actually says something about women and men giving up their natural relations and going after uh, people of their same sex. You know, that's kind of the closest they can get to anything that might remotely uh, connect to the topic of uh people who are in uh, same-sex relationships that are based on love and companionship. Um, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, it, there, it's the strongest argument because of its cultural history. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people who quote Sodom and Gomorrah and use the word sodomite aren't Bible thumpers, but it's gotten into our culture to the point that they use that as an argument and hold on to it because everybody has been told that's what the story means it's so interesting too um because it is used against the lgbt community while my feelings is be more appropriately used with the issue of immigration and children in cages and how we are treating the strangers among us because that's what that scripture is about but the very people that hold that up against us are really the very people that are clapping because we have children at cages and um immigration Black My up. guess is if I quoted one of the texts that talks about the widow, the stranger, and the orphan, especially the one that says you shall love the stranger because you were once a stranger, they would say, well, that's not literal. <laughs> not meant to be literal. The story of the eunuch. Um, yeah. Can you give some comment about that? 
Well, there's a lot of um, biblical scholarship on eunuchs and what's going on. Um, we're not even certain all that that, that label entailed. Um, we know a few things, um, but we don't know if eunuch was a catch-all term for a lot of different people who didn't fit the norm. Um, but the story of the eunuch, to me, is another reminder that wherever we have placed boundaries, God breaks them down. Mm-hmm. Wherever the text says this, we can find another place that contradicts it. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to remi- remember that um, we're asking those questions of what's timeless and what's time bound. So where we read about eunuchs not being allowed into the temple, etc., and we have the passage from Isaiah, we have the story of the eunuch, um, and everything we thought we had neatly within our borders spills over. And we have to start rethinking that. So that's just one story where the thing that we thought was set in stone gets broken down. Um, there's another story where um, in, in Numbers about the daughters of Zelophehad who had no brothers or fathers, and so their father's land had to go to the next male kin. And they didn't think that was right, so they went to Moses and said, you know, what what can we do about this? Our father's land will be lost to another uh, family. And God changes the inheritance law right then and there, that if a man dies without sons, his daughters can inherit the land. That's evidence within the the text itself that laws were not set in stone and were always being reinterpreted. Um, So again, even if it says you shan't, you know, don't eat a cheeseburger, first we want to know why they say that, but then it's been reinterpreted throughout Jewish history. It's only Christians who don't want to let laws be um, altered or changed, which is really odd to um, so I think that the eunuch story, the story of uh, Ruth is a great story. Moabites are not people we should hang out with. And yet she becomes the great grandmother of King David. She's in Jesus' lineage. Um, and when they celebrate the giving of the Torah, they read the book of Ruth in Judaism because she is the embodiment of Torah. And mm. she's a foreign woman, Moabite woman. That shouldn't happen. And it happens right there. Mm. Great. Well, as you as you close with this, um, a lot of things we talk about here at Bluegrass is that we we are very welcoming, obviously, to the LGBT community. And we ask ourselves questions all the time about the other. Who is our other and what's our challenge there? And the other thing, if you could comment on, I know I took a class from you called uh, Contemporary Issues in the Bible and how. I think it's important because, of course, LGBT is a hot-button issue, but whether it's abortion or capital punishment, or just speak to that briefly, and then we'll let you go. Sure. I'm actually teaching that class again this fall. God bless them. Yeah. <laughs> so two-week course. Um, I, I, again, have noticed throughout uh, my life that... Um, the people who are using the Bible or the, the people that I consider on the wrong side of, of God's uh, understanding of love, um, or at least haven't fully come to that understanding of divine love. Um, so I think it's important that we who may claim to be a different voice 
um, one, be able to speak up authoritatively and speak up authoritatively. Why is it the only voices we hear on TV and the radio are the conservative voices? So if we're going to speak to an issue like uh, immigration, I want us as people who believe the biblical text has some meaning for our understanding of who God is to know the biblical text, to be able to interpret those texts and glean from them the meanings we need, and then just step forward and speak. And that might mean going toe-to-toe with someone. But silence is not an option for those who know better. Um, And so when we do this class, we'll name all the hot-button issues we think are out there, and the board will be covered. Um, And then each student takes a hot-button issue and looks at the texts that have been used in the debate, interprets them, and then comes out with a statement of what they think the Bible has to offer about this issue. Um, And that to me is preparation for being a public theologian. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, the topics range from abortion, um, same-sex marriage, uh, the environment, global warming, um, you know, creationism, to things like immigration, to um, issues of border control. Um, So it's a a class I always learn something from, but my whole intent is to prepare people to be a public voice to offer a counter view to what normally gets hurt. And I remember you taught us a lot in that when you're looking at contemporary issues, people can pull those texts out and and, and use them to prove both sides of an argument. And you have to be very careful in doing so. Yeah. And that's that consistent hermeneutic. Yeah. How did you determine this text has something to say and that one didn't? Um, and if you can name that, then you're on firmer ground. But most people can't other than, like I said, that one steps on my toes. Yeah. This one doesn't. So it's literal. Let's thank Dr. Davison. Thank you.